0: Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the March 6, 2023 Monday reading of the Denver Post. My name is Dee Hyslop. Today we will be reading the following main articles. Mayor's Race is Up for Grabs, written by John Murray of the Denver Post, Logging for fire mitigation stokes anger among residents by John Aguilar of the Denver Post. GOP and Dem States look at restoring felons' rights by Gary Fields of the Associated Press and following up with miscellaneous articles. Mayors' race is up for grabs. Unpredictability reigns with 17 candidates in the field. Voters just tuning in by John Murray of the Denver Post. The crowded Denver mayor's race is quickly nearing the home stretch, but there's little indication that any of the 17 candidates are breaking out of the pack just yet. That's true even among the roughly half dozen who are widely considered the top contenders, say political observers and insiders from some of the campaigns. The TV ad war has begun in earnest, and recent polls have underlined all candidates' need for more exposure with their findings that nearly 60% of likely voters agreed on one thing. They're undecided. This is the latest developing mayoral race I've ever seen, said James Mejia, a longtime Denver Civic leader and former city official who ran unsuccessfully for mayor in 2011. Ballots go out to voters next week for the April 4th election. It's all but guaranteed to be just the first round, unless someone wins more than 50% of the vote. As of now, it's anybody's guess how low the vote, share threshold will be for the top two finishers to advance to the June runoff. The race features Denver's largest mayoral field in at least four decades, and perhaps ever. Many voters are just starting to tune into the contest to succeed three-term Mayor Michael Hancock, experts say, with attention likely to soar once ballots hit mailboxes. Though at least 10 candidates have fundraising totals that would allow them to buy TV ads at some level, most have held back. It's made for a quieter campaign so far, with the candidates focusing their energies on building grassroots support, knocking on doors with volunteers, organizing events in neighborhoods and living rooms, speaking at community meetings, harnessing social media, blitzing voters with text messages, and attending the packed schedule of debates and forums. The evolving media landscape also offers new ways to reach younger voters, from podcast interviews to digital ads and spots on streaming services such as Hulu, which several campaigns plan to buy. It's really just going to voters. You can't just wait for them to come to you, said Sheila McDonald, the campaign manager for candidate Kelly Broff, a former leader of the Metro Denver Chamber of Commerce, and chief of staff to former mayor John Hickenlooper. That's why we're in every neighborhood. I think it's going to be about who can talk to the most people and who has the experience to lead the city. Few public polls have shed light on the standings. In January, outgoing at-large City Councilwoman Debbie Ortega's campaign touted an internal poll that showed her leading with 16% support among 500 voters surveyed, followed by a tie at 8% between State Representative Leslie Herod and community activist Lisa Calderon, a repeat mayoral candidate. In late February, a group of business leaders called a Denver for Us All released a bipartisan poll conducted February 9th and 10th that found 59% of likely voters were undecided. No candidate cleared 10% in the 405 person sample with Broff leading at 7.6%. Don't congratulate her yet. Six rivals landed within the polls nearly 4.9% point margin of error of broth. That meant she was in a statistical dead heat with Herod, former State Senator Mike Johnson, Ortega, State Senator Chris Hansen, businessman and Army veteran Andy Rujo and Calderon. All are among the top fundraising candidates. And Thursday night, Nine News released the results of a new poll that showed just as much indecision among voters with 58% undecided. The poll of 594 likely voters conducted February 21 through 28 by Survey USA found Calderon, Johnston, and Brough tied at 5%, followed by Hansen and Ortega at 4%, and the rest of the field polling lower. But all 15 candidates who registered any support fell within the 4.9% point margin of error of the leaders. If anything, the polling results show that name identification, a benefit of holding prior elected office or a prominent job, has been the biggest factor, boosting candidates. It's amazing. This thing is up for grabs, said Eric Sonderman, a political analyst whose experience in Denver elections goes back to 1983. He considers this year's race, the first open contest for mayor in a dozen years, fascinating, but also impossible to analyze. Clear leaders may emerge soon, but it's not guaranteed. So what will happen when undecided voters make their choices? That question is fueling plenty of speculation. The picture might remain as muddled as it is now, or perhaps a handful of candidates will surge in coming weeks, as has tended to happen in the last several contests that elected new Denver mayors. In 1983, 1991, and 2003, seven candidates made the mayoral ballot each time. Reliably, three to four candidates would finish with vote shares in the double digits, with none winning the first round outright and the top two proceeding to the, a runoff. In 2011, ten candidates qualified for the ballot with three finishing in the double digits, between 25.7 and 28.4 percent. Hancock and top finisher Chris Romer made the runoff, which Hancock won, while Mejia came in a close third. In all four of those elections, everyone who made the runoffs won at least 22% in the first round. But with 17 candidates on the ballot this time, it's possible nobody will reach 20%. Mejia and Sonderman said, even if likely voters begin to coalesce around certain candidates. I think this is going to be like 2011 with a tight race among top finishers, but with much, much lower percentages," Mejia said. We're talking about like 14 to 15 percent to get into the runoff, which is a little bit frightening. That's also nerve wracking for some candidates and their campaign advisors. People are making up their minds later than they traditionally would because of the large field of candidates, said Craig Hughes, a campaign strategist for Johnston, who's a veteran of Colorado Democratic politics. So we're growing it step by step, building a large coalition that can carry Mike to victory on April 4th, which most likely means qualifying for the runoff. Their prospective free-for-all also raises the potential for surprises, such as a top two finish for a proud conservative in liberal Denver. That's the result Rougeau, a registered Republican, is aiming for as he pushes back against the plans offered by his more liberal competitors. He self-funded more than 95% of his $786,000 campaign hauled through January 31st, the most recent report available. Andy will break through to the second round because he's the only candidate in the race who has an actual plan to address the growing crime problem and homelessness in Denver, predicted Matt Conley, a Rizzo advisor who's a veteran GOP consultant. TV ad war is brewing with more participants. Rougeau launched his first TV ad last week, spending $60,000 for the first batch of spots on all the local broadcast networks, according to public records, on file with the Federal Communications Commission. Before that, Hansen was the only candidate directly airing ads. His campaign went up in mid-February and has spent nearly $186,000 in three weeks' worth of ad time on broadcast and cable stations as of Thursday records show. More ads are coming, including more outside groups reporting independent expenditures. In late February, a flurry of TV spots began promoting Broff with business development and real estate interests operating under the name A Better Denver, reporting $262,000 in media buys. Broff's campaign is set to begin airing its own ads on Monday, FCC Records show. At Johnston supporting group called Advancing Denver, has just begun airing ads promoting him. The group has reported $380,000 in spending on media buys and is funded by people from the business and investment worlds, with former DaVita CEO Kent Teary kicking in $150,000. And a group backing Herod called Ready Denver has disclosed $120,000 in spending on TV, digital advertising, and production, though no TV ad buys had surfaced in FCC records as of Wednesday. The group hasn't disclosed its donors. So far, Sonderman is surprised by how much so many candidates are playing it safe, holding off on a tax. An exception in mid-February was when Herod and another candidate, Ian Thomas Tafoya, took Hanson to task during a debate for images of mostly black and Latino men apparently engaged in crime in his first TV ad, a charge Hansen chalked up to politics. I'm sort of waiting for more candidates to do that, to embrace controversy, to say something even a little bit edgy, just to try to break out, Sonderman said. But look for the knives to come out as the election nears. And the candidates who have spent weeks listening to each other's proposals on debate stages may look for chances to co-opt ideas. It's the swiping and stealing time used at Donna Good, a now-retired fundraiser for several past mayoral candidates who's served in city positions. Good says she was torn between several candidates but decided recently to back Herod. Yet she doesn't blame voters for waiting to tune in so soon after last November's midterm elections. The people of America are exhausted, she said, and we're asking them to pay attention to something that they're sick of, which are elections. It's not that they don't care, but they're just so tired. Campaigns hope grassroots focus will pay off. Grassroots organizing remains the focus for most campaigns experienced and upstart alike. The fundamentals of the campaign don't change, even though this is a crowded race, said Rachel Kane, a senior advisor to Ortega's campaign. So we're contacting voters by phone, we're sending text messages, and we'll be running a paid communications program too, including TV and digital ads and direct mail. This year, the implementation of the city's new Fair Elections Fund, which matches donations of up to $50 on a nine to one basis using public money, has helped attract even more candidates than usual to Denver's nonpartisan election. The end of February marked the cut off for donation matching eligibility. Van Nosler-Beck, a senior advisor for Harrods at Harrods team tried to lay the groundwork for a surge in the final weeks by using the Ferry Elections Fund to draw in supporters and seek out their input on the campaign, establishing tight connections. The Harrod campaign early on recognized that this is a community groundswell type of race where we have to meet Denver residents where they are, she said. It has worked every step of the way up till now. Our campaign is ready to meet the moment. But whether voters will come through for any campaign, no matter the endorsements they plug or how many TV ads they buy in the next month, is an open question. Voters are considering a field in which nearly every conceivable political lane, progressive, tough on crime, anti-camping ban, pro park space is occupied by multiple candidates, whether they have recognizable names or not. Jeff Fard, a community activist in Five Points, who's known as Brother Jeff, has hosted live-streamed interviews with most of the candidates on his online show. He ticked off qualities he found appealing in several candidates, including leadership exhibited by Herod at the legislature, Calderon in the criminal justice arena, and Broth in the business world, along with Defoya's environmental focus and anti-gang activist Terrence Roberts' ideas for engaging the city's youth. My candidate is a composite of all of these, Fard said, noting he's undecided. His overall prediction is that a woman will win, marking a milestone for Denver. Which woman is the question? He sees similar thought processes playing out among many voters. Some bemoan the fact that there are so many candidates, Fard said, but what that says to me is democracy is at work. When I see the level of candidates that we have, I'm really inspired. Logging for fire mitigation stokes anger among residents. Opponent Describes Shock and Horror at the Sight of felled Trees by John Aguilar of the Denver Post. Hundreds of freshly cut ponderosa logs lay stacked in rows in Elk Meadow Park, some measuring several feet in diameter and more than a century old. Not far away wood chips and slash litter a clearing where trees once stood. My initial reaction was complete shock and horror, said Teresa Fox, an evergreen resident who regularly hikes the open space properties that dot the Jefferson County high country. The mature straight trees were all logged, and only scrub trees with no value for logging were left. Eleven miles from Elk Meadow is Flying J Ranch Park, which Fox said she can no longer visit because she is so sickened by the total devastation the logging has brought. An effort to... Halt the logging has gathered more than 500 signatures on a change.org website. What's upsetting Fox and other residents in the foothills is what Jefferson County calls wildfire mitigation alongside a larger effort to maintain forest health in a drying climate. The county's natural resources supervisor, Steve Germain, said climate change is making wildfires a year-round hazard and Jefferson County can't ignore it. It doesn't help, he said, that decades of fire suppression have helped make forests more combustible. On most days of the years, if you thin trees and keep surface fuels in check, fire danger will primarily be restricted to the ground, where emergency responders have a better chance of fighting, keeping it under control, he said. Fire didn't thin them naturally and we now have unhealthy number of trees, so we are doing our best with mechanical thinning treatments to mimic natural fire. Aside from Elk Meadow and Flying J Ranch, Jefferson County has been felling trees in Meyer Ranch Park and Reynolds Park. We just began a thinning project at White Ranch Park and have plans to thin stands in other parks, especially in areas near neighborhoods, schools, and other places where human safety is a priority, Jermaine said. The county's efforts are occurring against the backdrop of a 10-year initiative by the U.S. Forest Service to prevent wildfire catastrophes catastrophes by treating, defined as prescribed burns or thinning, up to 50 million acres. Federal planners have prioritized forests around urban areas, including Colorado's Front Range from Fort Collins to Pueblo, designating the 3.5 million acre area as one of the West's most imperiled high-risk fire sheds. Evergreen resident Joanne Hackus, who also serves as a board member with the Evergreen Audubon chapter, said Jefferson County is targeting too many mature trees. I've seen truckloads of large, old-growth trees being driven away from our neighborhood parks, Hacker said. There is lots of money to be made in selling big trees, but it irreparably damages the forest. The county, she said, is using a technique called mastication, which essentially chops up treated areas into mulch. Hacker said the... Practice disrupts the soil and damages roots. We know that natural fires in the past thinned forests and led to trees of different varieties and densities, she said. We need to keep a forest that is varied in age, variety, and density to prevent wildfires. Chad Hansen, forest and fire ecologist with the John Muir Project in Big Bear Lake, California, said Jefferson County is doing everything wrong. Removing mature trees increases wildfire spread and severity, he said. When they do these logging projects under the guise of thinning, that reduces the cooling shade of the canopy. Denser forests do not burn more intensely. By removing big trees, Hansen said, more ground is exposed to Colorado's generous sunshine with desiccation or drying of grasses and ground cover the result. And the buffering effect on the wind that trees provide is reduced. It was bone-dry grasslands along with fierce winds that fueled the Marshall Fire in 2021, whipping flames from the fire's point of origin along Colorado 93 all the way into Superior and Louisville, where more than 1,000 homes were destroyed and two people died. Weather and climate are dominant in wildfires. It's about hot, dry, windy conditions, Hansen said. Removing these trees is about the dumbest thing you can do. Logging opponents point to guidance in the county's own forest health plan, which was established last year. The plan advises the county to promote larger diameter and fire-resistant trees, such as ponderosa pine. Many of the trees are clearly very old growth, Fox said. Most of what was taken were ponderosas. Additionally, increased fire activity is directly related to higher temperatures, and trees are responsible for carbon recapture. In a way, the remedy actually contributes to what causes more fires. But Germain said it's a misnomer to call the ponderosas that are being cut old-growth trees, a term that evokes more of an emotional response. Ponderosa pine trees only begin to take on old-growth characteristics between 200 to 300 years of age, and they may live to 400 to 500 years, he said. Some of the trees we are cutting are large, and some are approaching 125 years in age, but none are old growth. And the notion that the county is making a windfall from timber sales resulting from the felling is simply untrue, Jermaine said. We hire local small business people to do most of our forest thinning. A lot of the material is ground up and spread around on site because it has no market value, he said. We hold firewood sales to provide wood to local residents, and the county does not profit from any of this. Jefferson County pays contractors about $3,500 an acre for thinning, Germain said. It's important to keep in mind that all of this wood is a result of 125 plus years of fire suppression and it wouldn't have been here naturally, he said. For us, the main thing is that this excess wood gets removed as we return our forest stands to a safer, more natural state. Jefferson County Commissioner Andy Kerr said he's heard from both sides in the debate, constituents who are dismayed by the cutting and constituents with homes that back up to county open space who wonder why Jefferson County isn't doing more to mitigate fire danger in its land. Fire is going to happen and if it does, we want to make sure it's not the high intensity fires that are going to obliterate everything he said. GOP Dem States Look at Restoring Felon's Rights by Gary Fields of the Associated Press. TJ King had candidates and causes to support but couldn't vote in Nebraska's last election. An outreach specialist with the Nebraska AIDS Project, King came off probation in August after serving time for drug and theft convictions. In many states he could have voted in the November general election but Nebraska requires a two-year wait after the completion of a felony sentence before someone can register. King's first chance to vote will be in the 2024 presidential election season unless a legislative proposal introduced in January that would remove the two-year requirement passes and becomes law. That likely would change the timeline for the restoration of voting rights for King and thousands of other Nebraskans. Voting, King said in an interview, gives a little bit of your strength back and a little bit of your voice back. Being able to vote Being able to have a say in what happens in your society, in your state, is extremely important. Restoring the voting rights of former felons drew national attention after Florida lawmakers weakened a voter-approved constitutional amendment and after a new election police unit championed by Republican Governor Ron DeSantis arrested 20 former felons. Several of them said they were confused by the arrests because they had been allowed to register to vote. Attempts like those to discourage ex-felons from voting appear to be an outlier among the states, even as some Republican-led states continue to restrict voting access in other ways. At least 14 states have introduced proposals this year focused on restoration of voting rights, according to the Brennan Center for Justice. An Oregon proposal would allow felons to vote while incarcerated. A Tennessee bill would automatically restore voting rights once a sentence is completed, except for a small group of crimes. Texas legislation would restore voting rights to those on probation or parole. In Minnesota, Democratic Governor Tim Walz on Friday signed a bill restoring voting rights to convicted felons as soon as they get out of prison. A bill moving through the New Mexico legislature would do the same. Restoring voting rights really is an issue where we've seen bipartisan momentum, said Patrick Berry, counsel for the Democracy program at the Brennan Center. More than 4.6 million people are disenfranchised in the United States because of felony convictions, according to the Sentencing Project, which studies the issue and advocates for restoration of voting rights for former felons. Laws vary by state based on pardon requirements, payment of fines, fees, and child support, and when a sentence, including probation and parole, is considered complete. The impacts fall disproportionately on people of color, especially black citizens who account for one third of the total disenfranchised population while making up about 12% of the overall population. In Nebraska, nearly 18,000 people are unable to vote because of felony convictions said the sentencing project's Director of Advocacy, Nicole Porter. That includes 7,072 who fall under the two-year wait requirement and are currently unable to cast a ballot. The rest have not completed their full sentences. Steve Smith, a Civic Nebraska part of a large coalition of groups supporting the measure, said the wait creates a group of taxpayers who can't choose their representatives. You're civically dead and you can't vote for the people who are levying those taxes, he said. The bill would eliminate the wait would alter a 2005 law. Before then, felonies in Nebraska brought a lifetime voting ban in most cases. At the time, Nebraska was in step with other states. Now, while a few states require wait times for specific offenses or define completion of a sentence as including things such as fines and restitution, Nebraska is alone in requiring a general waiting period beyond imprisonment and release from parole or probation, said Margaret Love, co-founder and director of the Collateral Consequences Resource Center, which keeps a 50-state database on restoration of rights. The bill's author, Democratic State Senator Justin Wayne, said he was going door-to-door in his first election in 2016 and was told by would-be constituents that they could not vote. Much of the reason was confusion over the law's waiting period, he said. He has introduced bills multiple times to do away with the wait period, coming close to success in 2017, when a bill passed the legislature, but was vetoed by then Republican Governor Pete Ricketts. Wayne, who represents parts of Omaha with strong minority populations, said reconnecting people to the voting process is integral to successful re-entry. His bill advanced this past week from a committee to the full legislature. When people get out of our system, they've got to feel engaged in their community. And the number one way for a person to feel engaged in their community is to be able to vote for the leadership of that community, he said. Kathy Wilcott, a member of the University of Nebraska Board of Regents, was the lone dissenter from among the nearly 20 witnesses who spoke on Wayne's bill. Wilcott stressed she was speaking as an individual and not on behalf of the university. I do not think that hopefully the waiting period reinforces the fact, I'm sorry, I do think that hopefully the waiting period reinforces the fact that voting is something very special and hopefully that will be part of the things that an individual would consider if they're tempted to break the law again, she said. Using AI to detect breast cancer that doctors miss by Adam Stariano and Cade Metz of the New York Times. Inside a dark room at Box Kiskin County Hospital outside Budapest, Dr. Ava Ambrose, a radiologist with more than two decades of experience, peered at a computer monitor showing a patient's mammogram. Two radiologists had previously said the x-ray did not show any signs that the patient had breast cancer. But Ambrose was looking closely at several areas of the scan circled in red, which artificial intelligence software had flagged as potentially cancerous. This is something, she said. She soon ordered the woman to be called back for a biopsy, which is taking place within the next week. Advancements in AI are beginning to deliver breakthroughs in breast cancer screening by detecting the signs that doctors miss. So far, the technology is showing an impressive ability to spot cancer, at least as well as human radiologists, according to early results, and radiologists in what is one of the most tangible signs to date of how AI can improve public health. Hungary, which has a robust breast cancer screening program, is one of the largest testing grounds for the technology on real patients. At five hospitals and clinics that perform more than 35,000 screenings a year, AI systems were rolled out starting in 2021 and now help to check for signs of cancer that a radiologist may have overlooked. Clinics and hospitals in the United States, Britain, and the European Union are also beginning to test or provide data to help develop the systems. AI usage is growing as the technology has become the center of a Silicon Valley boom with the release of chatbots such as ChatGBT showing how AI has remarkable ability to communicate in human-like prose, sometimes with worrying results. Built off a similar form used by chatbots that is modeled on the human brain, the breast cancer screening technology shows other ways that AI is seeping into everyday life. Widespread use of the cancer detection technology still faces many hurdles, doctors and AI developers said. Additional clinical trials are needed before the systems can be more widely adopted as an automated second or third reader of breast cancer screens beyond the limited number of places now using the technology. The tool must also show it can produce accurate results on women of all ages, ethnicities, and body types. And the technology must prove it can recognize more complex forms of breast cancer and cut down on false positives that are not cancerous, radiologists said. The AI tools have also prompted a debate about whether they will replace human radiologists with makers of the technology facing regulatory scrutiny and resistance from some doctors and health institutions. For now, those fears appear overblown, with many experts saying the technology will be effective and trusted by patients only if it is used in partnership with trained doctors. And ultimately, AI could be life-saving, said Dr. Laszlo Tabar, a leading mammography educator in Europe who said he was won over by the technology after reviewing its performance in breast cancer screening from several vendors. I'm dreaming about the day when women are going to a breast cancer center and they are asking, do you have AI or not, he said. Hundreds of images a day. In 2016, Jeff Hinton, one of the world's leading AI researchers, argued that technology would eclipse the skills of a radiologist within five years. I think that if you work as a radiologist, you are like Wiley E. Coyote in the cartoon," he told a New Yorker in 2017. You're already over the edge of the cliff, but you haven't yet looked down. There's no ground underneath. Hinton and two of his students at the University of Toronto built an image recognition system that could accurately identify common objects such as flowers, dogs, and cars. The technology at the heart of their system, called a neural network, is modeled on how the human brain processes information from different sources. It is what is used to identify people and animals in images posted to apps such as Google Photos and allows Siri and Alexa to recognize the words people speak. Neural networks also drove the new wave of chatbots such as ChatGBT. Many AI evangelists believed such technology could easily be applied to to detect illness and disease, such as breast cancer, in a mammogram. In 2020, there were 2.3 million breast cancer diagnoses and 685,000 deaths from the disease, according to the World Health Organization. But not everyone felt replacing radiologists would be as easy as Hinton predicted. Peter Keshkomethy, a computer scientist who co-founded Cairan Medical Technologies, a software company that develops AI tools to assist radiologists detect early signs of cancer, knew the reality would be more complicated. Kaskamathy grew up in Hungary, spending time at one of Budapest's largest hospitals. His mother was a radiologist, which gave him a first-hand look at the difficulties of finding a small malignancy within an image. Radiologists often spend hours every day in a dark room looking at hundreds of images and making life-altering decisions for patients. It's so easy to miss tiny lesions says Dr. Edith Karpati Keksmethi's mother who is now a medical product director at Keron. It's not possible to stay focused. Keksmethi along with Keron's co-founder Tobias Richken an expert in machine learning, said AI should assist doctors to train their AI systems. They collected more than 5 million historical mammograms of patients whose diagnoses were already known, provided by clinics in Hungary and Argentina, as well as academic institutions such as Emory University. The company, which is in London, also pays 12 radiologists to label images using special software that teaches the AI to spot a cancerous growth by its shape, density, location, and other factors. From the millions of cases the system is fed, the technology creates a mathematical representation of normal mammograms and those with cancers. With the ability to look at each image in a more granular way than the human eye, it then compares that baseline to find abnormalities in each mammogram. Last year, after a test on more than 275,000 breast cancer cases, Tehran reported that its AI software matched the performance of human radiologists when acting as the second reader of mammography scans. It also cut down on radiologists' workloads by at least 30% because it reduced the number of x-rays they needed to read. In other results from a Hungarian clinic last year, the technology increased the cancer detection rate by 13% because more malignancies were identified. Tabar, whose techniques for reading a mammogram are commonly used by radiologists, tried the software in 2021 by retrieving several of the most challenging cases of his career in which radiologists missed the signs of a developing cancer. In every instance, the AI spotted it. I was shockingly surprised at how good it was, Tabar said. He said he did not have it any financial connections to Karan when he first tested the technology and has since received an advisory fee for feedback to improve the systems. Systems he tested from other AI companies, including Lund Insight from South Korea and Vara from Germany, have also delivered encouraging detection results, he said. Karan's technology was first used on patients in 2021 in a small clinic in Budapest called Ma, M, ma clinica. after a mammogram is completed, two radiologists review it for signs of cancer. Then the AI either agrees with the doctors or flags areas to check again. Across five ma'am ma clinica sites in Hungary, 22 cases have been documented since 2021 in which the AI identified a cancer missed by radiologists with about 40 more under review. It's a huge breakthrough, said Dr. Andras Vadasky, the director of Ma, Ma Clinica, who was introduced to Keron through Kapardi, Kexmesthi's mother. If this process will save one or two lives, it will be worth it. Keron said the technology worked best alongside doctors, not in lieu of them. An AI plus doctor should replace doctor alone, but an AI should not replace the doctor, Kexmesthi said. The National Cancer Institute has estimated about 20% of breast cancers are missed during screening mammograms. Vehicle owners can register for car theft deterrent program. It authorizes Denver Police to access tracking data if vehicle is stolen, by Karen Nicholson of the Denver Post. Denver Police on Friday announced a new program, Denver Track to help combat car thefts by recovering vehicles quickly while increasing arrests. The program works with any vehicle that has an installed tracking device, either factory installed or aftermarket devices, including Bluetooth and GPS devices that track in real time. Denver Track requires owners to register with the program to preauthorize police access to GPS location data to be used when and only if a vehicle is stolen, the release said. When a Denver Track Register vehicle is reported stolen, police will confirm consent and access the vehicle by gathering location information. The Denver Police Department is committed to reducing auto thefts in Denver and recognizes the significant impact this particular crime has had on our residents and visitors, Police Chief Ron Thomas said in the release. In 2022, Denver police officers arrested 1,484 suspects for auto theft compared to the nearly 14,900 reported stolen vehicles in Denver, which is why having tracking information in real time is vital in retrieving stolen vehicles and holding offenders accountable. SB 23097, a state proposal to make nearly all car thefts a felony-level crime, cleared its first legislative hurdle this past week. According to the Colorado Commission on Criminal and Juvenile Justice, auto thefts in Colorado rose 86% between 2019 and 2021. In Denver, vehicle owners can visit Denver Track online to register vehicles and learn more about the program. Once registered, police will mail Denver Track stickers to owners to place on vehicle windows to deter car thieves. Placing a sticker on a vehicle is encouraged but not required. It's free to register but a manufacturer fee may be incurred if the GPS system is accessed, police said. This coming week from 4 to 7 p.m. Monday through Friday, volunteers will be at Denver Police District stations to help vehicle owners in filling out pre-authorization forms. In addition, drivers who visit district stations can receive an etching kit aimed at deterring catalytic converter thefts, as well as license plate theft prevention screws while supplies last. GOP Sought Primary Voter Restrictions Become Law," by Mead Groover of the AP. Switching political parties to be able to choose the primary in which a voter wants to cast a ballot is an old Wyoming tradition, one that has faced growing scrutiny as the state's Democrats increasingly struggle to field strong candidates, and Republican primaries often all but decide who eventually wins office. At least some Democrats in this GOP-dominated state haven't been shy about changing party affiliation just to vote in Republican primaries, including the blockbuster U.S. House race featuring Representative Liz Cheney's loss to Cheyenne attorney Harriet Hageman last summer. Amid GOP grumbling about crossover voting, switching parties ahead of primaries is about to get a lot more difficult. Republican Governor Mark Gordon said Thursday he would allow a bill curtailing the practice to take effect Friday without his signature. The bill has flaws that may confuse voters, but they aren't serious enough to warrant a veto, Gordon said in a brief statement. Until now, Wyoming voters have been able to register to vote and declare party affiliation at the polls or up to two weeks before primary day. The new law prohibits changing party affiliation for almost three months before primary day in August crossover voting in Wyoming got fresh attention ahead of the 2022 primary as former President Donald Trump and allies sought to discourage the state's dwindling number of Democrats from voting for Cheney as she courted Democratic votes. It makes total sense that only Democrats vote in the Democrat primary and only Republicans vote in the Republican primary, Trump said in a statement endorsing a similar bill last year that failed. Access to voting in primaries varies widely across the country, ranging from 20 states where any voter may choose candidates from any party to nine states where only voters registered with a party can vote for that party's candidates. The rest fall in between with a variety of rules, according to the National Conference of State Legislatures. In Wyoming, Trump's concerns about the Cheney race turned out to be overblown. Cheney, who stoked Trump's ire, by voting to impeach him for the January 6th, 2021 violence at the U.S. Capitol and by leading the House investigation into the insurrection lost by 37 points, enough that even all the Democrats in Wyoming couldn't have helped her to win. Wyoming Secretary of State figures suggest crossover voting occurred. Democratic registration fell from about 46,000 in January, 2022 to 36,000 on primary day, August 16th, bottoming out post-primary at 30,000 in September, a modern day low. Republican registration, meanwhile, climbed from about one hundred ninety-six hundred thousand in January 2022 to 215,000 on primary day and 235,000 in September. Republican registration previously peaked at 209,000 after the 2020 election. Cheney's losing margin of almost 64,000 votes, however, far exceeded Wyoming's Democratic registration at any given time in the past decade. Fears among Wyoming Republicans have, nevertheless, been growing that Democrats, in disguise, are watering down conservative values among leading GOP candidates at all levels. Crossover voting has undermined the sanctity of Wyoming's primary process, Republican Secretary of State Chuck Gray said in a statement after the bill cleared the House. A former state legislator, Gray ran for the state's top election oversight job last year on the debunked claim that widespread voter fraud cost Trump the 2020 election. Gray won a three-way GOP primary with 44%. The Wyoming Republican Party, which censured Cheney for opposing Trump and voted to no longer recognize her as a Republican, has supported the change as a top priority. Political parties should be able to select their own candidates free of interference and manipulation by outside entities, a state party resolution stated last fall. The bill had far from unanimous support, however, even in a Wyoming legislature more dominated by Republicans than at any time since 1920. Just seven of 93 state legislators are Democrats. At one point, the bill failed on a three to one committee vote, but was resurrected under a rule allowing reconsideration by the Senate, which passed the bill 19 to 11 on February 24th. Opponents included Chambers, two Democrats, and several Republicans who said GOP dominance in Wyoming is already almost absolute. By all accounts, we are becoming more polarized, and when you become more polarized, you want absolute control. That's what this bill does, Republican Senator Cale Case said in debate on the Senate floor. Case sought to change the bill to reduce the blackout period for changing parties to 45 days before the primary. His proposal failed, and the bill, as passed, would have barred party registration changes after the candidate filing deadline on the last Friday in May until primary day for both parties on the third Tuesday in August. Some lawmakers pointed out, other states, such as New York, have more restrictive party registration rules than Wyoming. We're making it sound like we're just going to be this draconian island in the middle of the country that has this horrible closed primary system, and that's not the case. We're still relatively an open primary state, Republican Senator Bo Bightman said. Before last year, Republican mega-donor Foster Freeze claimed after his unsuccessful run for Wyoming governor in 2018 that he could have won if Democrats hadn't switched to vote for Gordon. Some observers, including University of Wyoming data analyst Brian Harnish, doubted the claim and the issue has faded as a major concern in the governor's race. Gordon received 59% in a four-way Republican primary last year and won a second term with 76% of the vote. EXCEL must file fees for solar hookups. Order comes after rules requiring charges be submitted amid deluge of complaints by Judith Kohler of the Denver Post. State regulators have ordered EXCEL Energy Colorado to file fees and timelines for connecting residential and business solar systems to the electric grid. The order comes more than a year after regulators approved rules requiring utilities to submit the fees and after a deluge of complaints about delays by Excel. XL Energy's handling of applications from property owners and solar installers has come under scrutiny after complaints that waits for service stretched into several months. For the last several months, solar companies and customers said they faced long delays and few answers after investing in equipment and work. The Colorado Public Utilities Commission issued the order February 28th and gave Excel 45 days to file the fees and timelines along with provisions for customer refunds if deadlines aren't met. In a February PUC meeting, Commission member Megan Gilman said the order would provide a path forward on addressing the unprecedented number of complaints about Excel's action on connecting solar systems. It's clear there needs to be more structure, there needs to be tighter oversight, and there needs to be financial incentives and penalties at play here because this is just plain not going well as it currently is, Gilman said. Xcel Energy is an outlier in terms of the number of complaints about delays and the process overall, said Ron Davis, a PUC staffer. He said Black Hills Energy, which, like Xcel, is an investor-owned utility, filed its fees and information about hooking up smaller solar projects after the PUC approved the requirements to do so in July 2021. To my knowledge, Xcel has no interconnection tariff on file with the Commission, Davis said. Xcel Energy has received input on proposed fees in anticipation of the filing of fees, company spokeswoman Michelle Aguayo said in an email. The previously approved rules didn't include a deadline, she said. Rooftop Solar is a customer option that plays a meaningful role in reducing carbon emissions in Colorado, and we've been a strong partner. We've safely connected more than 85,000 customer solar systems to our grid in Colorado, Aguayo said. Xcel Energy acknowledged having a backlog of more than 4,000 interconnection applications in January. The company attributed holdups to a flurry of applications in 2022 due to increased federal and state tax incentives. It also blamed delays on incomplete or inaccurate applications. Aguayo said Excel has cleared more than 90% of the backlog and expects to eliminate it early this month. State regulations require that a portion of the electricity sold by investor-owned utilities comes from renewable energy sources. The requirements include making room on the system for a certain amount of distribution generation such as solar panels on homes or businesses and community solar gardens. Mike Kruger, president and CEO of the trade group Colorado Solar and Storage Association, said several solar installers have said they are seeing more applications approved. We'll need to see their official proof, but I believe they have the backlog back to a minimal amount, and fingers crossed, we'll not see it go back up once the spotlight is off them, Kruger said. In sports, Cracked up, Seattle scores late, beats Colorado in OT to spoil a bounce-back game by Bennett Durando of the Denver Post. The Avalanche needed to regroup from a slump for the first time in weeks after stamping an unsavory place for themselves in franchise history. They only had 24 hours to do so. After allowing seven goals in back-to-back games, the Avs tightened the screws on defense Sunday night but couldn't complete the triumphant rebound, losing three to two in overtime to the Kraken. Brandon Tenev scored with two minutes, 30 seconds remaining in regulation to tie the game after Colorado's effort to hold the lead for most of the third period. It started with the avalanche leading two to one, but forced to defend a full two minute five on three. Alexander Georgiev made seven of his 32 saves during the penalty kill and the defensive dynamo of Kale McCarr and Devon Taves stayed on the ice for the entire two minutes. The Avs killed another penalty four minutes later, but Seattle tied it at 5-on-5 and ended it early in 3-on-3 overtime. Yanni Gordy potted the winner. Colorado's previous two games were characterized by defensive zone turnovers and lackadaisical costly errors. It was only the second time the Avalanche allowed 14 goals in a two-game stretch since moving to Denver. The most recent was February 12-14, 2011. The last time the franchise had allowed more than 14 over a two-game stretch was November 10-12, 1991, versus Washington and Hartford. Both those teams, one avalanche, one Nordiques, finished significantly below 500. This avalanche team had a chance to climb back into third place in the Central with a win, but instead they're tied for that position with Winnipeg. Dennis Mulligan, scored his fourth goal in the past 10 games to hand Colorado a 2-1 lead in the second period, two minutes after Alex Wenberg tied it for Seattle. Makar, in his second game back from a concussion, made a pinpoint pass out of the defensive zone to give Mulgan a breakaway. He converted to Philip Grubauer's glove side. Meanwhile, Georgiev turned aside two Seattle breakaways in the period to cover for the Avalanche's rare defensive lapses. The first period had been more low-event hockey with poor puck management by by both both teams. Nathan McKinnon provided the only breakthrough of the opening 20 minutes with a nifty cutback move to score his 11th goal in as many games. Colorado signs Moustakas to plug hole in the infield, three-time All-Star trying to return from injuries by Patrick Saunders of the Denver Post. Looking to shore up their suddenly shallow infield, the Rockies on Sunday signed veteran Mike Mustakas to a minor league deal. Mustakas, 34, a left-handed hitter projects as a third baseman, first baseman designated hitter. With Gold Gloves second baseman Brendan Rodgers likely out for the season with a shoulder injury and with Ryan McMahon moving over from third to second, Mustakas feels a need. He also provides insurance if rookie corner infielder Elohuris Montero fails to produce at the plate or in the field. But first, Moustakas, who's attempting a comeback from two years of injuries, has to make the big league roster. If he doesn't make it, he faces the prospect of accepting an assignment to Triple A Albuquerque. That's something we'll talk about if it happens, he told MLB.com. It's the second time in two days the Rockies have signed a veteran to fill an immediate need. On Saturday, the club signed veteran left-hander Brad Hand to shore up the bullpen after lefty Lucas Gilbreth was slated for Tommy John surgery. Hand pitched effectively last season for Philadelphia, going three and two with five saves and a 2.80 ERA over for 55 appearances. Signing Moustakas is a no-risk move for Colorado. Moustakas, a three-time All-Star who's been plagued by injuries in recent years, was released by Cincinnati in January. If he makes Colorado's roster, the Rockies will only owe him the major league minimum salary. The Reds would be on the hook for the $22 million salary he's owed after he signed a four-year, $64 million deal with Cincinnati prior to the 2020 season. Mustakas was slowed by a heel contusion and a calf strain over the past two years in Cincinnati and put up a weak 212, 289, 356 slash line with just 13 home runs. But he told MLB.com on Sunday he's healed up and ready to go. I wanted to make sure I was healthy and find my way back to 100%, he said. And about halfway through rehab, I was like, okay, I'm good to go. Moustakas has hit well at Coors Field in his career, albeit in limited action. In 12 games, he slashed 324, 359, 405, but with no home runs. Prior to his injuries, Moustakas was a solid player for the Royals. Brewers and Reds from 2015 to 20. The Moose was a central figure of the Royals World Series championship team in 2015. Schifrin's quest for win 86 moves to Stenmarks, Sweden. Mikael Schifrin's quest to tie Swedish great Ingemar Stenmarks record of 86 career World Cup victories now moves to his home country. Schifrin's next race is a giant slalom on Are on Friday as the American skier seeks one victory to match Denmark's total on the all-time overall winners list between men and women. The Swede competed in the 1970s and 80s. Are was also the venue of the Coloradans' first career win in December, 2012. Schifrin rounded off a three-race weekend in Norway Sunday by finishing in seventh position at a Super G affected by changing weather conditions. The American was fourth in a Super G Friday and fifth in a downhill the following day to lock up her fifth World Cup overall title. Thank you for joining us for the Denver Post. My name is Dee Hyslop. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.